Exodus 27. 4, verse 27. I am totally thrown off now. Just so you know, Manitoba staff, you missed out last week. Last week, if you read the first little uh, 24, 25, and 26, we talked about circumcision. So feel blessed by God that we are at verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness and to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words that the Lord, with, with which he had sent him to sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders and the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmaster of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they shall make in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor as it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as, there is, as, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and said to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the faint is in your own people. And he said, You are idle. You are idle. That that is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall make no means to reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to these people, this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by you. All of it. 
Genesis through Revelation. And Lord, this morning, your revelation is found in Exodus. Lord, I pray that your spirit will breathe on us, open our ears, open our hearts to receive your good word. Lord, I pray that you use me this morning, your faithful witness, to preach the gospel according to Exodus. Lord, we pray for transformation this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, So from the very beginning, we have seen how the entire book of Exodus is not really about Israel at all. This is not a book about the memoirs of the people of Israel. This book is actually a book about God. It's, it's God's deliverance of Israel. What God is up to. And it is not just to rescue them from slavery. It is ultimately to show the world what God is really about. What is God like? Who is this God of the Hebrews? So the book of Exodus is not just a storybook that we get great stories about Moses and the people of Israel crossing through the Red Sea. It's not just about meeting God on the, the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and receiving the Ten Commandments. It's not about just the ten plagues. This is ultimately a book about God revealing himself to the world, showing his character. And we even have seen how foundational this book is for the rest of the Bible, especially our understanding of the gospel. The title of our series that we are in right now is The God Who Hears. And Moses' aim is ultimately to establish God's heart for his people that he has heard their groaning, and his plan is ultimately to deliver them, to bring them out of bondage. So far, we have seen the plight of the Israelites. We have seen Moses' birth. We've seen his adoption. We've seen his failure, his 40-year flight into the land of Midian. And we've seen God's call to him through the burning bush. Last week, we watched Moses, how Moses was taught that he must trust and obey God, and how those two components are integral. They are still true for us, that we need to trust God at His Word, and not just trust Him that they're true, but obey everything that He has commanded us. He was given a call. Moses was given a call to return to Pharaoh, and, and with signs that would affirm his credibility to the people. God was sending him back to Egypt to deliver a message to Pharaoh the greatest superpower in the region, that Israel must be set free. Our text this morning records the first steps of Moses in trusting and obeying God's plan. His first steps. And we're, we're going to see something very important, and I would guess something very familiar, that following God's plan is not usually smooth sailing. And I want, to, I want you to hear that this morning, because right now, some of you who are coming back to camp, it's kind of like this fun buzz kind of thing going on. You don't know what's going to happen. You're really excited. Everything's going to just happen according to God's plan. But I want to tell you this morning, following God's plan is not usually smooth sailing. And some of you have felt that very personally. Chapter 5 gives us an honest view of what often happens in life when it comes to God's call on our life. And the lesson I want to show you from this text and from other parts of the New Testament is this. And this is going to be our theme for this morning. Our theme is this. Faithful followers need to take the long view. Faithful followers need to take the long view. The long view of life, the long view of ministry. Moses needed to learn this lesson, and I think we probably do as well. I know I do. So let's walk through this text and see how this lesson is laid out, and then let's connect it to the New Testament in our lives. First, we're going to see the stages of, of Moses' first ministry. Re remember that we believe it was Moses who wrote this book. 
And he, he wrote the book of Exodus. And that is important when you consider the various stages of his first ministry opportunity. He's laying it out there. He's, he's being very honest about what this first step of trusting and obeying God really looked like. Chapter 5 is not flattering to Moses at all. And it seems very clear to me that he wants us to, wants us to see a very early lesson which he needed to learn. The first thing, the first lesson or first stage is about excitement. We pick up the storyline in Exodus 4.27 as Moses was making his way to Midian, uh, from Midian to Egypt. And while Moses was making his journey, God sent, issued a call on his, his brother-in-law, his, his, this guy named Aaron. He placed this call on Aaron to meet him. And Aaron heard this call, go meet in, in the wilderness, go meet Moses. Therefore, Aaron began this journey into the wilderness and he met Moses at the mountain of God. And verse 28 tells what happens next. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had been commanded to do. This had to be one of those moments. Moses told Aaron about the burning bush. Brother, you are not going to believe this. I was out tending the sheep, and out there was this bush that it was just ablaze with the very presence of God. It was huge, but it was not being consumed. You're not going to believe And then on top of that, it, it spoke. It spoke to me. So it was there, Aaron, that I learned the name of God. Yahweh, I am who I am. And, and I also learned, Aaron, God's promise to deliver our people. And, and listen, on top of that, he, he gave me all kinds of signs. The first one, sign was, I don't know if it's going to work now, but I took the staff and I threw it down, and it turned into a, a snake, some kind of snake, more than likely a cobra. And then God told me to pick it up. Who does it? I'd want to club it to death. But God told me to pick it up. And you know what happened? turned back into a staff. And then God told me to put my hand in my cloak. You know what happened? I pulled out and it was covered with leprosy. I was scared to death. You know what that means? That means I am going to be cut off from all humanity until I am healed. And you know what the recovery rate of leprosy is? Nil to nothing. But God, God gave me another sign. Put my hand back in and it came out and it was fresh and clean like the rest of my body. Then God told me, Take water from the Nile, throw it down on the ground, and it turned to blood. He gave me all these signs. So more than likely, these two men started comparing notes about what God was doing. Aaron more than likely shared his calling from God. And he said, really? Well, that would explain this, this, and this, all these things working together. It must have been very clear that God was up to something. God was up to something, and that they were called to this amazing task. There must have been a great deal of excitement as they witnessed the merging of their lives together at this divinely appointed opportunity. God was up to something, and they were going to be a part of it. And it got even better when they arrived to Egypt, because when they gathered the elders and the people together, an amazing thing happened. According to verse 20, Aaron told them all the words that God had said and showed them all the signs. In other words, he told them about the promise that from Exodus 3. God said, I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them to a land. Where? That is flowing with milk and honey. Man, this is so much better than slavery. God came down and he is going to deliver us. Aaron must have told them about the name of God, about how this name of God is different than all the other gods. That God is the self-existent God, not relying on any other gods. I am that I am. And it must have been unbelievable news. How can we tell? Because verse 31 records the response of the people. Verse 31 shows that there was belief 
and there was worship. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. What an incredible moment. And can you imagine that? You start sharing the gospel with a friend, a family member, a child in a cabin or in day camp. You start sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden they go, "Uh uh-huh. And they start worshiping? The excitement that must be going on in that very moment. This is what many people in, in the ministry call the ministry honeymoon. Everything is going great. This is what I've been dreaming about. This is absolutely amazing. Moses and Aaron had delivered some amazingly good news, and the people have responded very positively. Very positively. They not only believed Moses and Aaron, but they worshiped God. This was one of those amazing, exciting ministry opportunities where everything was colliding and there were bells and whistles. Everything was going on. Have you ever experienced that kind of ministry, that kind of situation? It's very common in the early stages of Christianity, right? Or on your personal level or on a ministry level. Maybe you've experienced it in your own walk with the Lord after you came to Christ. Maybe you saw it as you led another person to Christ. Maybe you've watched it for the, in the first few times of a counseling session or maybe the first six months of leading a small group. It's really exciting. Things are all clicking together. Maybe you saw it when you took some early steps in, in giving some spiritual direction to your own kids or in a one-on-one discipleship relationship. In the initial moments, you sense the favor of God. And you think you are indestructible. Nothing will get in your way. You dream of what could be accomplished. The first few steps are so glorious, so exciting, so fun, and so rewarding. You can't believe you're in this place. You have such strong faith, and it feels like God is helping you, and the world could be taken by storm. And there's something wonderful about those early and exciting days and moments and weeks and years of ministry. However, it's only a matter of time until challenges come. The second stage is the collision of confrontation. That is part of the Christian life and any task that that is orchestrated by God. God's mission and ministry and message to a sinful world are light, is light in the midst of darkness and are usually opposed. That's why I'm describing this stage as confrontation. And I don't mean that it's always confrontational in the negative sense as, as we often have in mind. Oh, you're being confrontational, you're being pushy. But there is a fundamental fact that we have to understand about the Christian life and ministry. God's message to the world is countercultural. The message of the gospel is countercultural. You are turning everything upside down. Everything that the world believes and desires, you are saying, uh uh-uh, uh, Jesus. It's countercultural. All your good, everything that you desire and pleasure and all those things. No, you know what's better? Jesus. You want to live for yourself and you want to amass all of this and have all that and have a name for yourself? You know what's even better than that? Jesus. You want to live this way? You know what the gospel says? Die. You think that's going to give you life? Uh Uh-uh. You're not going to have life until you die. Whether it's your own heart, whether it's your kids, someone that you've been discipling, your your small group, your day camp, your cabin, counseling or, or leading a ministry, God's plan usually meets opposition. And we see this in chapter 5 as Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh meet together for the first time, right? 
They just had this amazing experience out in the wilderness, and then they meet Pharaoh. He's the guy who pees on their parade. They got this amazing message from God, and God says, listen, my hand's going to be upon you. You tell him, let my people go. And they go, he said it. We're going to do it. The people responded in this amazing, they believed and they, they received and they worshiped. Then we meet Pharaoh. And they give this message, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may have a feast for me in the wilderness. And don't miss the significance of, of this. Thus says the Lord. Throughout the Bible, this will be familiar, a familiar way for the prophets to speak to human beings as they deliver God's message. Thus says the Lord. It's a way of saying, perk up your ears. God is speaking now. And then it says, the Lord, the name that Moses was given, the meaning which set God apart from the other so-called gods of Egypt. That God, none of these other ones, that guy says this. And then it's my people. Part of the conflict between Pharaoh and God will center on who has the real authority over the Israelites. Is it Pharaoh or is it God? That they may hold a feast for me. This is a, a modest way of asking for a full and permanent departure. And Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's response was equally telling. And it was loaded and it was defiant. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Are you serious? Who is this guy? This God says, let my people go? Are you serious? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Notice that Pharaoh summarily rejected the request with a mocking tone. Who does this God think he is? He's nothing. I do not know him. I am not going to obey him. This would be the first of many refusals. Moses and Aaron then responded with a, another request that, that's kind of stated a little different with, with, with the tone of the judgment that they just got. There is a clear warning here. If you do not let us go, there will be judgment. In other words, Pharaoh... This is not optional. Let us go, or judgment will come. Now take a, take a step back with me and realize the importance of what has just happened here, because it's very instructive. Very. Moses and Aaron are allowed to deliver this message from God, which was the truth. However, the truth was not received or embraced by Pharaoh. Why? Because Pharaoh did not want to submit his life, his will, to God. He did not want to obey God. Pharaoh wanted to live in a world where he is not constrained by the requirements or the demands of someone greater. Does that sound like our world? At all? Really? You want me to give up my lifestyle for this God? I'd much rather live this way free in my sexuality, free in my spending, free in my whatever I view and whatever I think. I don't want to be constrained by God. Who is he to tell me what to do? And you're going to see one major of the lessons of, from this book is the supremacy of God over Pharaoh and over his people. God is supreme. In fact, what does God give to his people just after he delivers them? He gives them the law. Why? Why does God deliver and then give the law to his people? Because his people need to know that he is God. The law was given to them so that they understand that God established, has established authority over their lives. It is for their good. And God's ability to be God and to set boundaries in the lives of his people is a central message to the Bible. God establishes right and wrong, not culture. Why? Because God is God. And it should not surprise any of us 
that this is not well received by humanity. Parents should not be surprised when your children do not like the boundaries that are established at home. It's in their nature. When you play games in day camp field and you have that one rogue kid, and you'll know his name quickly, and he does not want to listen to any of the instructions, just remember, okay, Paul talked about this. I was warned. Humanity does not like boundaries. We shouldn't be surprised when the message of God to humanity is not enthusiastically embraced. God's message to the world, whether you like it or not, although it is good news, it is fundamentally offensive. It's offensive. And at the same time, be sure, be sure that the people that you are sharing this good news with are not put off because of your actions, your attitudes, and your presentation. Sometimes people are just put off by the gospel because you are a jerk. It's true. How many Christians do you go, I don't want to be a Christian because look at him or look at her. They are hypocritical and mean. It's true. And don't be surprised if there is some level of confrontation. But be sure that it is the message that creates the confrontation. Not you or your demeanor. The next stage of ministry is cost. The next stage is when the calling of God becomes increasingly difficult. This is when the confrontation connected with God's plan is no longer theoretical and when there are real costs and there are real effects on a day-to-day -day basis. Exodus 5, we see Pharaoh, like any other tyrant, concludes with a show of force, right? Seriously? You're going to tell me to let them go? I'm going to show you who is in charge here. Tell them that they still have to make bricks. We are not going to supply them any straw. In fact, they've got to go gather their own straw. And not just straw, it's the stubble that is left over after we have gathered our straw. So make the same amount of bricks doing ten times the amount of work with leftovers. That is a cost. That's a cost to being faithful. Pharaoh's solution was to make them work even more difficult, make their work even more difficult, and cause them to reconsider their choices. The order made it all the way to the taskmasters, and then made it to the, the foremen, that they would have to produce the same amount, and this order affected everyone. And when they were unable to make, uh, unable to find the straw, they began to use stubble, and when they... The leftover pieces were left over, and they were just gathering it together. <coughs> the effects was that the bricks were hard to make, and it involved much longer and harder work. This order was not only a new responsibility, it was tedious, and it was difficult. And what's more, the failure to produce the same amount of bricks brought a beating about. There's clearly a sense in this text that there was a growing pressure in the land and a growing injustice. Pharaoh was punishing the people with this order and he was sending a message, a shot across the bow. And the task was nearly impossible. And so the foremen were making an appeal, a desperate appeal directly to him. And they were told, you are being idle. You're being lazy. That is what you say. Let us go and sacrifice. You want to go do that? You guys are just being absolutely lazy. And since Pharaoh was the highest level of authority in the land, the failure to, to appeal there was a failure to appeal, and that meant that the situation was hopeless and it was unchangeable. Pharaoh was unyielding, and he was ruthless, and the effect meant that 
the foreman knew they were in trouble. How fast things changed. How quickly can your hope evaporate under the, the weighty cost of what seems, seems to fit with your original hopes and dreams? Things were going so good. They, the people of Israel were responding. God was doing something. And just like that, everything turned upside down. It was just 19 verses earlier that the people believed in God and worshipped Him. Now they were weary and they were depressed. And who can blame them, right? Life had become very, very hard. And then the next stage, the next stage, after an unsuccessful appeal to Pharaoh, the situation turned very personal. Opposition. Moses and Aaron received the blame for the miserable effects of Pharaoh's orders. And, and the foremen, their words were filled with anger, fear, and personal accusations. This is the first of many fearful responses on the part of the Israelite people. It, and it will be a familiar pattern if you're walking through the 16 months with us. Verses 20 and 21 20 and 21, they met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And as they came out to Pharaoh, they said, the Lord look on you and judge. God saw our plight and he was going to deliver us. God look on you and do what? Judge. Because you made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and put a sword in their hand to kill us. Notice the depth of the accusations. First, God was going to going to judge them because Moses and Aaron were obvi obviously mistaken about what God had said. And then it goes, Moses and Aaron were to blame for Pharaoh's disposition. And then they created a scenario that was going to lead to even worse circumstances. You were wrong, it's your fault, and this is going to get ugly. Fear and disappointment in the face of of unfavorable early effects often sound like this. These emotions are so strong that they are typically directed towards people, especially leaders, because of our desire to blame someone. Our fears need a focal point even if it's irrational or fair. The fact of the matter is that the problem in Exodus 5 is Pharaoh. He's the issue. But Israel needed to blame someone else. And there's something to note for moments when, like this, when, when you get involved in the lives, lives of people for the sake of the kingdom. You should always be humble and evaluate what areas of improvement and growth that you need. But just be aware that when things get difficult, when things get difficult, people are very quick to want to find someone else to blame. And it usually gets very personal. And you're going to feel the shot to your heart as fingers are going to be pointed at you. So just be prepared for the reality of ministry. Don't completely disregard and write off, ah, you know, this is just one of those uh, opposition moments that Paul talked about. Don't, don't disregard what they're saying, but at the same time, don't take it overly personally. Our text ends with what I believe is the main point of this, this passage. It seems to me that Moses includes this, this struggle in order to make a much larger point about God's deliverance and, and God's plans here. Remember the main point of this message, message today is that faithful followers need to take the long view of ministry and the long view of life. However, we see a failure in Moses' life to live with this philosophy in mind. 
Moses pours out his heart to God in a prayer of complaint. I don't know if any of you have had these kind of real, raw kind of prayers with God at that point in your life where you're going, it is all hitting the fan, and it is getting absolutely ugly. I've been through opposition. I've felt the cost. I've gone through all this. God, what about this right now? Listen, to, listen closely to Exodus 5, and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Why did you send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now some people might struggle with Moses' prayer because this is a gut-level, real kind of prayer. And maybe it's not kind of your prayers. Maybe you just pray for Aunt Millie who has a broken toe and somebody who, who is struggling and you need a job. But this is a gut-level kind of prayer. God, why did you send me here? Why? It seems like you've given me a message and there's a pain right here. Why'd you send me? You're not even doing anything. You're not delivering these people. Why did you send me here? I am utterly discouraged, questioning my call. But hear this, the Bible often records these conversations with God for a reason. And when you find yourself in these places, I want to encourage you, write down Psalm 13, right now. Psalm 13. These are prayers of discouragement. Write down Jeremiah 20, 7 through 18, and you're going to hear Jeremiah's just gut-level prayer to God. These are very appropriate. These kind of prayers are very appropriate for talking with God about our confusion, about our frustration, about our pain. This is very different from the angry and sinful kind of cursing of God that's advocated by Job's wife. Why don't you just curse God and die kind of prayers? This seems to be an honest wrestling with God over what is happening. Moses is clearly discouraged. He's discouraged and he struggles with four things. God is allowing evil things to happen to his people. God's, God's call to Moses seems to be pointless and, and fruitless because nothing's happening. The charge to Pharaoh was, has made everything worse. And there seems to be, lastly, no promised deliverance in all of this. Can you relate? Maybe not. Maybe you're too early into your ministry life. How many times, for those of you who have struggled, have you said things like this? God, why won't you stop this? Or, nothing is working. Nothing. Where every time I try to do what, do what is right, it just seems to get worse. Or, God, your promises, your irrevocable promises are not working. Honestly, I think I've said this at times in my, my own marriage. I've said it in times of raising my kids. God, why? In counseling someone where I thought I'd been faithful, giving them a good word from God, walking them through Scripture, and all of a sudden, it explodes in my face, and it gets ugly. In leading ministry in a church, if you think church ministry is glorious and just filled with awe and wonders, run away. Get a clue. It's painful. It's difficult. I've even said it in my preaching, God, why, why are not souls being saved? If you desire to save, 
men and women and children. Why? And Moses, like all of us, was looking for at the circumstances in his life, and he was in the face of opposition, and he was drawing the conclusion that nothing was working and everything was falling apart. The burning bush, the name of God, the promise of deliverance all seemed very far away. Man, it just seems like yesterday, but now it seems like an eternity away. And the belief of the people in their worship of God in the beginning seems so far away. Those honeymoon years or moments were this feels like decades. And Moses had begun to doubt. And his doubt had led him to discouragement in the face of opposition and hard circumstances. He was no longer taking the long view. Remember God's, God's view of time? A moment is like... Any idea? A thousand years. A moment. God has a long view of history. We have a very small view of history. But we're going to look ahead, just chapter 6, one, 1 through 2. We're going to study this next week, so if you want to come back, come to New Lenox, find a car, get over there. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hound, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I, I am the Lord. Moses needed to remind himself that God was still working. That his promises were sure. That he is Yahweh. The great I am. And Moses needed to take a long view and to bask in the beauty of who God is. It was dark and discouraging at times, but it wasn't going to be that way for very long. These five stages of Moses' ministry are very helpful as they are very common. For you. These are common experiences in the Christian life, in the Christian ministry. If you think it's all going to be just a, a walk along the beach, rose petals, and you're delusional. You've already forgotten that you are planted as a source of light in a dark and broken world who is called to Reconcile all things to Christ. So I'm grateful the Bible records the story. It helps us keep a perspective. But now we've we got to ask, how do we take the long view? One final step and try to connect this text to the bigger step or the bigger picture of the scriptures. and We can see uh, we can develop some thoughts about how to take the long view as, as we, as followers of Christ, desire to be faithful. The first thing, how do we take the long view? First is, preach the gospel. Next one, Connor. Preach the gospel to your soul. The good news is a story of perceived failure. Think about it. The good news of Jesus Christ is a story of perceived failure turning into victory. That's what the good news is. I, I think it's really important to realize that the central story of the Bible, that Jesus died and was raised from the dead, is essentially the story a perceived failure turning into victory. When Jesus was being beaten, when he was hanging on the cross, when he died, when he was in the tomb for three days, it looked as if God's plan was a terrible failure. And Satan was going, got it. Busted. Got you, got it, your game. See, you failed after all. I got him on the cross. He's in the tomb. It's sealed. We have Roman centurions there. Failure. But on the third day, everything changed. 
everything changed. This is not just what God can do. It is the central part of the entire story of the Bible. You take the long view by preaching the gospel to yourself. When, when it is all hitting the fan, you say, you know what? The story of the Bible is that this failure is going to turn into a victory. Boom. Long term, God wins. Satan, you ain't got nothing on me. The second thing that we have to learn how to take the, the long view is we have to be wise about the highs and we have to be wise about the lows. We all love, if you had to choose, how many people would choose the, the, the lows? Uh-huh. How many of you would choose the highs? Those of you who didn't raise your hand, come on. Participate. Our, one of the greatest lessons that comes with time and age, I, I'm going to just be honest with you, many of you are young, <laughs> including myself, you know, Moses, by this point, is 80. 80. And he's learning this very important lesson. I've got a long ways to go yet. But one of the greatest lessons that comes with time and age is not getting overly emotional about mountaintop experiences and the valleys. To get all your hopes and dreams wrapped up in, oh, mountaintop experiences is what it's all about. Oh, valleys. This sucks and this is awful. There's nothing about God down here. And we get so emotionally bound up one way or the other in these two worlds, right? I love what Paul told Timothy. To preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. In season and out of season. The NRSV version of the Bible says, be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. I've seen the beauty of ministry that is powerful, that is life-changing, and is viral. You know what I mean by viral? Where it just catches wind, catches fire, and it goes from one person to the next, and it's just exciting. But I've also experienced seasons of opposition. I've experienced seasons of dryness. And yes, I've experienced seasons of ineffectiveness. And I think it's important to not be overly addicted to spiritual highs. Hear that. And not be overly depressed by the lows. Allow the sovereignty of God, the rule and reign of God, the one who is in charge of all things, to settle you, to calm you, and stabilize you. Number three, friends, mine the scriptures for hope. The Bible is filled with numerous accounts of God working in ways that, are, that were unseen at the time. Hebrews 11, if you are ever looking for mining the scripture for hope, Hebrews 11 gives us numerous examples of men and women who lived by faith in God's promises. Abel and Enoch, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob and Joseph, Moses and Joshua, all learned to live by faith. In fact, it was said of Moses that he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Why are these stories in the Bible? To encourage us to look beyond our present challenges. Listen to Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which 
Cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So many people, I've, I've just heard people describe this thing about this cloud of witnesses that it's like grandpa going, oh, way to go. Good job. This cloud of witnesses is just applauding you from above. How many of you have ever watched a marathon, a race? It's not people standing up in a in the stands just going, there are people alongside going, keep going, keep going. And these people in, in Hebrews 11 are saying, let me tell you about my life. So you got Moses who is standing along the edge saying, let me tell you about Pharaoh and what happened with Pharaoh. God is going to win. You keep going. Let me tell you about Abraham. And what happened here, and Abraham is going, let me look at my, look at my life, look at my story. You keep going. God will sustain you. Mine the scriptures for hope. When you think that all hope is gone, go to scripture. Remind yourself. i got to take a long view of scripture. How did Moses, who died at a Anybody know how old he was? 40, 40, and 40. 120 years. This man has a lot of stories and a lot of hope. And he witnessed a lot. Number four. Embrace dependency on God. One of the beautiful things of the story of Exodus 5 is the lesson of dependency. The lesson is this. I can't do this. And you probably need to tell yourself that every morning. You get up out of bed, there's no way I can do this. Whether you are an amazing plumber, carpenter, teacher, day camp coordinator, stay-at-home mom, faithful father, great husband, great wife, whatever it is, you wake up every morning and go, I can't do this. It's impossible. This is the way a person even comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, I can't do this. I can't take away my sins. I can't do it. I'm trusting on you. And this is the way we follow Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the vine. You are the branches. And apart from me, you can do I'm sorry, one more time. Yeah, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Taking the long view means that we embrace, embrace hardship. Not because it's enjoyable, right? Oh, beat me up today. But we do it because it pushes us towards the ultimate goal of dependency on God. We embrace hardship no matter what. You, you go through the midst of the storm. You don't try to get around it. God put it there. Go through the storm and depend on Christ. Cling to him. You are it. I can do nothing. Apart from you, I am nothing, God. So I'm going through this storm, clinging to you more and more. And this is how everything works out for good. I love how Paul says it in, in 2 Corinthians 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We, they, they were at the end of their rope. They were, they were like, God, just take me home. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. <laughs> That's the gospel story. Number five, and then I'm done. If I hear an amen, I'm upset. Number five, live with the promised future in mind. Why does the Bible tell us 
what happens at the end of all of our days? Why does the Bible end with revelation? Why does the Bible record the future defeat of Satan, judgment, and the reign of Jesus? The reason is so that we can connect our present everyday circumstances, our lives, to those future events and live godly lives now. In other words, if you know the end, it helps you live differently now. Are you serious, Satan? You think you got me whooped here? I know the end of the story. You ain't got nothing on me. I know the outcome. So therefore, I can live more courageously. I can live in the midst of all this pain and agony and sense of discouragement and defeat. Satan, to heck with you. Jesus won this. Even Peter points us to Jesus in the future judgment as a motivator for godly living in the midst, in the midst of suffering. 1 Peter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an, you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. If Jesus did it, you are also empowered to do it. Faithful followers take the long view. So I don't know where you are today. I can only guess that there are some of you. Some of you I know very personally are in the midst of a very dark and challenging season. And you're probably wondering where are the promises of God? And why is my life like this right now? Why am I being personally attacked? This is not me. Or how long can I endure this challenge? I don't know where you're at. Or if you're in this spot. Some of you need to hear pastors get in this spot. Friends get in this spot. And it's going to happen. But we can learn from Moses' life and from other places in the New Testament that faithful followers of Jesus have got to take the long view. cling to Jesus when it's all hitting the fan and you've said I can't do this God cling to Jesus let's pray Father God, I want to thank you for your inspired word, where you reveal yourself, your character, your desires, and your, your heart for your people. And God, this morning, I pray for those who are at those points of discouragement, of opposition, and counting the cost. Lord, help us. God, I pray that you 
help us cling, cling to Christ. Hold on to him tightly because we cannot, we cannot do this on our own. We are completely incapable. God, I pray for these counselors as they prepare for a summer of ministry. God, selfishly, I pray for a summer of excitement, a summer where they, they are just ex- experiencing those outpouring of your blessing and it feels like your hand all summer long is on them. That everything seems to be multiplying and growing. And Lord, everything is green and lush and bearing fruit. God, I pray for that kind of summer for this staff and God for our church, for Missio Day Church that we may experience that kind of season of ministry now. But God, I know I know from my experience, I know from Scripture, that is just not the reality. We will meet opposition because the gospel is offensive. We will have to pay the cost and deal with discouragement. Lord, thank you for the gospel. We're perceived failure. <laughs> it's put to shame in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God, use us all for your glory's sake. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.